Now we continue through the book of Proverbs this evening. Proverbs chapter 5. The misery of adultery, the blessedness of marriage. And why marriage is given. Or at least one of the reasons for which it is given. I'll read verses 1 through 23. I invite you to follow along. This may at times... Read more like a wedding homily, but that's kind of what it is. At least prior to meeting a woman, the father gives to the son the kinds of thoughts and speech to have in order to combat immorality and embrace beauty and goodness. My son, pay attention to my wisdom, lend your ear to my understanding, that you may preserve discretion and your lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell. Lest you ponder her path of life, her ways are unstable, you do not know them. Therefore, hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one. Lest aliens be filled with your wealth, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, and you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed. And say, how I have hated instruction, and my heart despised correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed to broad streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own. And not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. And always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of his sin. He shall die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. Thus far the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, may we, whatever relationship circumstances we find ourselves in, be those who exercise holiness in all that we do. For this is in fact the way to happiness to joy, to satisfaction, to live as you have commanded, to live in the world that you have made according to your law and what you call blessed. That we would seek holiness, not through a kind of stoic emotionlessness, but, Lord, to be enraptured by beauty, rightly embraced. And maybe those, Lord, who can see beauty for what it is, communicate it in the way that we ought to receive it in the way that we ought 
and to walk in it that we might be blessed. All of this for your glory and our good, we pray in your name. Amen. Again, the Father continues his lessons to the Son. And here, a very personal, pertinent, and simple set of instructions. In fact, even here at the opening of this particular lesson, this chapter, the Son speaks not only of instruction and wisdom, but my wisdom and my understanding. The Father is coming close to the Son. He seeks his attention, and he will tell him how to be happy in life. And in that most blessed relationship, or the most cursed kind, that relationship of intimacy with another. Tonight I want to look at this text under two headings, simple enough, adulterous misery and marital bliss. Adulterous misery and marital bliss. Two kinds of relationships, one good, the other bad. Let's look at the first one. We'll start there, the bad news, as it were. Adulterous misery. Now the aim of the father's counsel is to help his son here in verse 2 to preserve discretion and to allow his lips to retain knowledge. Now, it's an interesting focus, for we often speak of the seat of knowledge as the mind, a kind of invisible, immaterial place where we store knowledge and understanding and wisdom. And yet, when we apply wisdom... We apply it through those elements, those implements, those parts of our body that God has given us to interact with the world. Sometimes our feet carry us to sin or away from sin. Our hands lay hold of those things they ought. Sometimes they let go. Sometimes they lay hold of things that are good and righteous. We sin with our bodies. We sin with our hearts. We sin with every part of ourselves, and the way in which the Father wishes for the Son to go shields up, as it were, in relationship to the immoral woman, is to be able to combat what she is saying to him with words of his own, like, no, I'm sorry, I have somewhere else to be. I'm not going to do that. The Father wants the Son to have the kind of mouth connected to a certain kind of heart that longs to practice righteousness. And so the aim of the Father's counsel is not only a transformed heart, as we saw in chapter 4, but a mouth that combats the lips of the immoral woman that speaks sweetness, smooth things, but is in fact needing to be challenged. And so here, the Father seeks to protect his Son. And he does so, as he has done already, by showing two paths. The way that path, or the kind of entry to that path, the path of wickedness, the path of righteousness. This is how the path begins. It begins with sweetness and smoothness and light, but it ends up in death. The way of righteousness begins with a certain kind of similar type of offer. A sweet, beautiful offer, but it ends in life instead of death. And so how does this woman appear? Look at verse 3. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as the two-edged sword. So she promises much. She is enticing. She is a siren. Her song, her speech is flattery. 
And these things men would be helpless against. Now, again, I think it needs to be said that this kind of temptation can come from either sex, but the father is talking to the son here. And he is speaking of the kinds of words, the kinds of acts that bring you down to that place of sin. It is not an ugly offer. It is not stinky. It is sweet. It is smooth. It's beautiful. But it is not those things truly. Though she is sweet and smooth, she's actually bitter and sharp. And the way that she leads is not to blessing and life and satisfaction, but misery, regret, death, and yes, even eternally, hell. There will be temporary judgments. We'll see of those in a moment. But ultimately, the path is a straight line to hell. And if you do not ponder her path, verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 6, unless you ponder her path, you will not know what she's offering. The father wants the son to stop and to think. And so he continues because, let's face it, when someone says, if you do that, you're going to hell, how effective is that? What do you mean? I'm young. That has no effect on me. I'm not worried about that. I'll repent later. Oftentimes, the this sort of rebuke, you're going to die and go to hell, does not relate to us in the moment, especially when there is powerful temptation. And so the father wisely speaks of the folly of immorality and what it in fact leads to. Let's look at the sort of temporary judgments in verses 7 through 11. Now he opens it up to some degree to speak to all of his children. Therefore, hear me now, my children, do not depart from the words of my mouth. Now the reason why he opens this conversation up, not just to his son, but to all of his children, is he's going to talk about the effects of this kind of sin on the home. And this is the warning or the instruction. Remove your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Now this doesn't mean saddle up in the car seat next to her on the lookout, right? Overlooking the city lights. You should have never gotten in the car. Don't go out there at night. Or as we say to our kids, nothing good happens at 11, after 11. Come home. You're only going to get into trouble. The only people who are up should be going home. Now this is what, why? Don't go near her Unless, verse 9, you give your honor to others, your years to the cruel one. You'll waste your life. In fact, I guarantee you, ask any godly man or woman who's ever experienced a period of time in their life where they embrace this kind of sin, the great regret they have is, I wish I had never done that. Of all the things I could take back, this is what I would take back, this kind of living. It steals your years. And not just that. They're not just stolen. They're the cruel years. There's nothing worth remembering, is there? It's all trash. You take nothing from it, you give up everything. It is a cruelty. And not only that, but look at verse 10. Lest aliens be filled with your wealth and your labors go to the house of a foreigner... Now, the kinds of aliens 
that the Father is talking about here are not the ones that we're trying to get, you know, we're trying to, people are trying to distract us with, right? You know, you've heard of this military guy who's come out. Oh, by the way, the government has these spaceships in a hangar somewhere. Don't believe them. What kind of alien is he talking about here? A strange woman. Someone who is not a member of the household, who comes in, who is invited in, and that wealth that belongs to the home is given to a stranger who does not deserve it, who is not worthy of it, who should have nothing to do with it. They steal from you. And all that you have goes to the house of a foreigner. This is not a kind of xenophobia. This is the kind of warning that God gave to Israel. Do not intermarry lest you worship foreigners. Now the warning isn't against marriage. It's against idolatry. In fact, Israel was to be a light to the nations. And ideally that they would over time through marriage bring others into the covenant community. The problem is this. Missionary dating, missionary marriage is not only a bad idea, here it's a damnable idea. And I think you've seen this happen. Whenever someone says, oh, I'll change him, I'll change her, no, that's usually not what happens. In fact, the inverse is what? You lend your strength to that person, you're wasting your time, you're giving what you are to a stranger. Don't do it. And what will ultimately happen, verse 11, is that when it's over, your flesh and your body are consumed. Look at the world around us right now. The reason why people are so desperate and helpless, why they are overwhelmed with psychological and emotional trauma, is because they have spent their lives damaging their souls through sexual immorality. Have you ever met a soft-spoken, kind, public, transsexual? Just let me be. Just let me live my life. Have you seen these people on the news? They're not interested in a quiet, simple life. What they are interested in is stealing from you the kind of approval that gives them some justification for the sorrow, the guilt, and the emptiness they feel in their lives. And I'm telling you, don't give it to them. Let them feel it. It is the way that God has designed the world to be. Pray for their salvation. Bring them the gospel. But that is their only hope. It is not, it is not your approval. Parents, in the same way, do not give this to your children. Do not say, oh, it's okay. Because it is not. It is a wretched act. To give yourself outside of the bounds that God has established, what you will find is they will be overwhelmed with guilt and shame. And the only thing that can heal that is not, oh, it's going to be okay. It's praise God he forgives and brings healing. That is our only hope. Because what will happen, look at verses 12 through 14, is a kind of biological, or sorry, not biological, biographical, talking about biology, a biographical conclusion. If you have engaged in all of these things, what will end up happening is this. How I have hated instruction and my heart despised correction. I've been there. I have said, you know what, mom, dad, 
I, I like what you're giving me. I, I understand. I think I'm going to go in another direction. And do you know how many times that worked out for me? Never. Now, do you know how many times I told my parents it didn't work out? Probably not much. They were right. And as much as I hate that they were right, I look back on my despisal of correction, my lack of obedience to the voice of my teachers, and I find myself on the verge of ruin. There is public shame. There is public cursing. When you cannot, with your mouth, not only defend the cause of righteousness, but promote it among those who wish to lead you astray. And there is no greater personal sin and damage that you can do to yourself than the engaging in the kind of immorality that the Father is talking about to the Son. Now, what then is the correction? It is not singleness. It is not a kind of modern-day stoicism. It is not throwing away of satisfaction, of beauty, of sexual intimacy. It is what? It is rather instead to pursue intimacy the way that God has designed. In fact, one of the great afflictions of the modern day church is a lack of biblical aesthetics, beauty. What is beauty? And parents, if your children are not learning what the Bible calls beautiful, where will they then learn what beauty is? They're not learning at it, about it from their friends. They're not learning about it from their schools. I assure you this. Where are they learning it? Well, they are learning the world's view of it from the world. And the proper corrective is not to just say, no more of this. We're not going to talk about it. Actually, normally it's the kids that write, guys, we need to sit down and we need to talk about the birds and the bees. Uh-uh. I don't want to talk about this with you, Dad, <laughs> right? And so every once in a while, you sort of sneak in those comments everywhere you can. You know, the best way to teach your children about these things, if you have children at home, is to exhibit biblical romance in front of them. Yes, to some degree, right, as is proper. <laughs> Someone's laughing. <laughs> Maybe not about this. <laughs> I'm just assuming that's what it's about. So I'm going to talk about marital bliss. The father is not saying don't satisfy your thirst. Satisfy your thirst righteously. The best defense is what? It's a good offense. Drink water from your own cistern. And running water from your own well. Now this, verse 15, is a parallel to verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. What is the fountain? She is the fountain. Your physical intimacy, your tender covenantal marital relationship is the fount out of which you ought to drink and not just sip. It's a fountain, right? It's not a faucet. It's not a trickle. It should be something that is always flowing where there is life and it is, verse 15, running. The father is talking to the son about how to organize, how to establish a kind of life 
in which sexual intimacy glorifies God and is itself a kind of combat against the kinds of temptations against the world. So let's look through that. I've said already, satisfy your thirst righteously. Your own, your own speaks of possession. The one who belongs to you and no other. The one with whom you've then made a covenant of marriage. Don't go after strange water, but rather seek to satisfy your thirst in your home. Look at this, verse 16. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? There is a private nature to the intimacy that you enjoy. And it is not meant to be shared. Let them be only for you and not for strangers with you. This is a direct contrast against polyamory or polygamy or whatever perversion that we find in our culture today. This is strictly against OnlyFans. If you are engaging in social media for the sake of attention from your body, you are doing it wrong. It is a perversion. It is a distortion. It's what the scripture calls porneia or pornography. It is wretched. Not only are you to not go after strange water, but the relationship that you enjoy is for your delight alone. You should not market it or sell it. And so it is given for satisfaction and for the exclusive pleasure of those who are within the covenant of marriage. Now, with all of that exclusivity and the boundaries put upon it, there is enormous blessing within those boundaries. But if there are no boundaries, what does the Father say? There is no blessing. There is, in fact, the loss of delight, not the increase of delight. This principle that forbidden fruit is sweeter is true for a moment, but then it is what? It's sharp and bitter. So how then should the son enjoy the wife of his youth? Well, it should be exclusive within the covenant of marriage, and it should be one that the father calls one of enrapture. He is drinking deeply. He is a smitten kitten if you're familiar with that phrase. In fact, the response of Adam was just right in the garden. He looked at Eve and said at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It was an exclusive poem. It was a love letter. It probably was longer than that. It was actually probably a wedding vow. And he looks at the woman, and of all the glories he sees on earth, she is the chief beauty. Hence the distinct confession. And not only is he to be enraptured by her, but it is not vain or superficial or immature to enjoy, well, I don't know how to put it, her raw material, her body, what she's got. Right? Look at verse 19. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. Now, this is an interesting illustration. It's not the only time we see this again in Song of Solomon when a wife, and especially certain parts of her anatomy, are compared to a deer and a doe. Well, what is true of deers and does? 
Have you ever seen a deer leap through the forest and bound? Not only are they exquisitely beautiful and graceful, but it's hard to get near one. That that grace and that beauty is elusive. That there is a kind of elusive grace and elusive love, verse 19, that belongs to a woman that you experience only when you are married. And only enjoyed once you're married. The problem is this. If you've been to the beach lately, there are way too many deer running amok half-dressed on the sand. And it's neither graceful nor loving. It is immodest. It is smooth and sweet. But because everyone sees it, it isn't special. There is something glorious about beholding something and enjoying it in a way that no one else has ever enjoyed it or seen it. And that is what the Father is saying to the Son. This is what you ought to strive for. Now there is implied instruction, and it's found elsewhere in the Scriptures, given not only to sons, but to daughters. And that is what? Cover yourself. Be one who can be enraptured by only one. And so he doesn't get to just see it. The beauty of marriage and the permission that God gives when you say, I do, is now it's yours. The gift is no longer sitting under the tree. You get to open it. And that is glorious. In fact, there's not much that a good man won't do to gain that and to keep it. There is beauty, value, grace, and dignity of another that is enhanced. And in fact, it is exclusive through faithfulness. We live in a day of cheap sex. And as much fun, the fleeting fun that it may be, it just leaves you empty. And you don't actually get to have an encounter with beauty. You miss it. You do not get to enjoy it the way that God has designed. And instead, what are you left with? Total ruin. And so the call is repeated, verse 20. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman? What is the point, the father says? Now that I have laid out for you the curse and the blessing, why not choose the blessed way? Do you know why? Because we love sin. And we especially love the kinds of sins that hit closest to the greatest fountains of pleasure. Whether it is pleasure or wealth or power, Satan wishes to shift our focus away from the God-given rightful enjoyment of those things so that they, when enjoyed, do not become a delight. They are a guilt and they are a baggage and they are a misery. Don't go there. 
Stay away from her. She's using you. Stay away. And so then the appeal again is given at this book, at the end of this chapter, the standard of God's word, the inescapability of God's sight. Look at verse 21. For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Now again, the father isn't merely saying, God's watching you. He's going to get you. He's watching you. Because again, how many of the young people you've met think about that for more than 30 seconds after a sermon? Right? Oh, man. God's watching me. Now, do you know how many denominations have done that? Well, my mom grew up Nazarene. You know what the Nazarenes say? You sin once, you're going right back to hell. And so every Sunday, they've got to get resaved. It's a works righteousness. But that's not how the grace of God works. What we understand is that out of the heart, a life flows And if the fountain is putrid and filthy, so too the actions. How we live says something about our hearts. And we cannot live in a world that does not exist. What the Father is saying is this. God, having designed all things, sees all things. He looks at your life. And if you endeavor to live in a world that cannot exist, where God is not sovereign, is not Lord, is not the holy judge of all the earth, you can't live there. It will not work. You're talking about alchemy, as I have said. If you think that you can go and sow your wild oats and do all of this and still be happy, you'll go to hell. That's the end of it. You will be judged. Son, this is just the way it is. Live in the world that God has designed. And yes, God is watching. But the way in which God brings judgment on men is by giving them exactly what they asked for in the first place. Look at verse 22. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of his sin. Man is the only animal on earth that is this stupid. Right? If you set a trap and the animal sees you setting it, the father says, guess what they're not going to do? They're not going to go and walk into the trap. But I guarantee you, if I go out here and I dig a hole 100 feet deep, and then I put a picture of a woman on it in a bathing suit, there's going to be some guy that comes along and goes, "Uh uh-oh, and falls right into the hole. And you'll look at him and go, what are you doing? And it's not like I covered the trap, right? You do like you do with a lion in the jungle. You put some palm. It's just open. And then there's some spikes at the bottom. And there's a sign that says, don't come near. You're going to die. I'm going to, right? Grab it, and down you go. Why is this? Well, as Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. There is this overwhelming longing in our hearts to often do the very thing that God has instructed us not to do. And so what has God done? He has sent his son in the world to redeem us and by his spirit give us new desires. What the father is saying throughout the course of these nine chapters is, Walk in step with the Holy Spirit. 
follow the course of everlasting life. And then verse 23. Sometimes a man sins despite instruction. But what is the father's responsibility? At the very least, it is to warn. There are those who die for lack of instruction. That should not be us. There are many around us who do. But that should not be us. And the level of our denial of instruction that is clear is related directly to the greatness of our folly. There is a kind of heinousness of sin that comes, that is escalated, that is elevated, that is aggravated when those who know better continue to do what they know they should not be doing. So what all we do? Seek pleasure God's way. Don't swear it off. Seek it God's way. Seek what is beautiful, what is true, what is good. Know what is good and beautiful and then go after it. Seek Christ risen and reigning and pursue that righteousness revealed from above and then seek to honor Christ in all things. What does the father say to the son? Get married and have a good time. Love your wife. Stick to her and be happy. Let's pray. Lord.